Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 26, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Um, I, I just want to read you guys an email that we got. I've been, I was out the last three days. I just wanted to uh, read you an email from uh, a reader named Peter who said the following, I just wanted to say how much I've enjoyed the podcast this week with Noah Rothman as host. In fact, I originally found this podcast by searching Noah Rothman's name on Apple Podcasts about a year ago after hearing him as a guest on the Fifth Column podcast. I really think you should keep him as the host who steers the conversation and reads ads, etc., instead of John as a model. I highly suggest listening to the Reason Roundtable because they structure their conversations well with four people, and no one seems to monopolize the podcast as much as John frequently does. And on the Reason podcast, Catherine is the editor-in-chief, but she is not the host either. Thanks for considering my feedback. Uh, uh, I thought, Noah, you did a great job. And uh, I want to know why I should not heed Peter's advice and 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 surrender the hosting baton to you. Well, I'm sure we can talk about this offline uh, in more detail. Peter, thank you very much for the kind note, but I respectfully decline. John makes this look a lot easier than it does. I don't know how anybody talks at length about anything uh, after the last three days. So thank you very much for your, for your compliment, but uh, I'm quite happy in my position. And can, anyway, I, can I just say we were, we were joking offline after we taped one of the shows this week and said, we, we kind of felt like we, we were looking forward to John coming back because we felt like the kids whose parents, the teenagers whose parents had finally trusted them to, to stay overnight in the house alone. And we were really excited that we had not burned the house down. So, but we only made it three days. So Yeah. I, I thought we were about one day away from burning the house. Down. <laughs> We'd be off the rails if, if today was just us. You're gonna Mike Richards yourself, is that it? That's, yeah, something. You're gonna you're something. gonna say the thing that you shouldn't have said. That uh, don't worry. Like under the under the Mike Richards Jeopardy uh, losing your hosting job doctrine, there is literally no one in America who would not lose any job at any point if everything that was ever said somehow were transcribed by some you know uh, lunatic who was looking to. To off them, so um, uh, please, by all means, I, I welcome uh, all. If you want to listen to all six hundred commentary podcasts or whatever the hell we've done, go ahead. I'm already canceled. Don't worry about it. Uh, but I, you know, Noah, no, these are all younger people than I. Noah, Abe, Christine, they're all younger. They have they have a bright future. I'm just on the, you know, I'm just on the downward slope. So, you know, leave them alone. Just transcribe me. Anyway, I wanted to pull back because you guys did such a good job this week of sort of tracking the daily uh, humiliations, horrors, um, catastrophes, incompetencies, and all the rest of uh, of what has been going on in Afghanistan um, and focus on the largest question, which is this conversation that we are starting to have about uh what all of this means and what i mean by that is as Ezra Klein um you know the uh podcaster uh creator of Vox columnist for the New York Times has a very interesting uh and by interesting i don't mean i'm praiseworthy i just mean interesting or telling piece 
in the New York Times today called Let's Not Pretend That the Way We Withdrew from Afghanistan Was the Problem. And he goes through a series of arguments about how this conversation that is going on about the uh, the mess uh, obscures the fact that uh, uh, here's what he says, quote, focusing on the execution of the withdrawal is giving virtually everyone who insisted we could remake Afghanistan the opportunity to obscure their failures by pretending to believe in the possibility of a graceful departure. It's also obscuring the true alternative to withdrawal endless occupation. But what our ignominious exit really reflects is the failure of America's foreign policy establishment at both prediction and policymaking in Afghanistan. And then he quotes Senator Chris Murphy, Democratic Connecticut. The pro-war crowd sees this as a mechanism by which they can absolve themselves of an accounting for the last 20 years. Just think about the epic size of this policy failure. 20 years of training, more than $2 trillion worth of expenditure for almost nothing. It is heartbreaking to watch these images, but it is equally heartbreaking to think about all the effort of lives and money we wasted in pursuit of a goal that was illusory. Okay, I just want to break this down. There's more of the piece, but Abe... um, was the uh, those of us who were arguing and argued from the outset that what went on here was a deliberate choice by the United States to pull out and and leave you know let what may happen in Afghanistan was that because we were pretending to believe in the possibility of a graceful departure the person who believed in the possibility of a graceful departure was Joe Biden, not, quote, everyone who insisted we could remake Afghanistan, unquote. It was Joe Biden's plan to have a graceful departure. Everyone who insisted we could remake Afghanistan, the minute that Joe Biden announced that we were pulling out, said this is going to be a catastrophe. If I go farther than that. I don't know anyone who thought we could remake Afghanistan in the, for the la- who said that in the last 10 years. Um, I don't think that's really been the the um, the goal here, it, and and it keeps coming up in the argument over this. It keeps coming up in the defense of what's gone on here. That this is what happens when you try to uh, do the impossible when you try to remake Afghanistan. That was no longer the goal. We were no longer acting as if that were the goal. We had all our resources directed towards a very different goal that was being accomplished, and. So the 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 obfuscation is not on the part of the of the hawks. It's on it's on those who it's on the part of those who won't take responsibility for a the disaster that is leaving itself, no matter how orderly that this, this would have happened, and b for um, the way that it has happened. Well, the, can I just point out the one word in this very lengthy piece that Ezra Klein has published? The one word that does not appear, not even once, is terrorism. And there's and that's a reason what we were for doing that. There. And, yeah. and, cause, because that is what we were doing there and doing that successfully. Okay. Right. I, so, yeah, go ahead. Let's go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Just very briefly, briefly um, the notion here that, and you've seen this bandied about by some people who have only just tuned into Afghanistan in the last month. Um, describe what we're, we were doing there as an occupation. I mean, it tests the, the strength of the definition of the word to breaking point. The notion that a 2,500 person footprint represents an occupation force is insane. I mean, it suggests that we occupy Mali, we occupy Chad, we occupy the Philippines. 
I mean, it's just it's just patent nonsense, the sort of thing that that is is an effort to try to reinforce a conclusion that doesn't otherwise have any logical basis. Um, Joe Biden withdrew air and logistical support from the Afghan National Army, which was otherwise um, doing most of the fighting for us against the Taliban, um, and that precipitated this disaster and the over the horizon strikes notion that we can maintain this without reliable intelligence on the ground is betrayed a by our experience in Iraq in 2014 when ISIS streamed over the border and b by the administration's own actions which has been desperate in their pursuit of overflight and basing rights in Central Asia to maintain some sort of capability to disrupt and deter terrorism in AFPAC um, all of this betrays the you know solipsistic column here which has only one goal really which is to reinforce a notion that they adhere to that the technocracy works technocracy is nigh infallible. It's people who suck. People always betray, and very Trumpian in a way, the people have betrayed the leader. Not, not the, 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 the plan was great. Goss plan can't be questioned. It's the people who just can't implement it the way it should be. Okay. I think the Afghan people would uh, reject the notion that the country was not remade over the last 20 years. I mean, that's uh, thing number one is... We had uh, we had um, no education for women, and now you know girls and women. Uh, you know, until two weeks ago, were uh, educated on a par, or you know, close to on a par with males. We had a, a almost entirely agrarian society. Now, Kabul is like a mega city. I mean, it's 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 not Mexico City. It's not. Shanghai, but it is now a an urban. This is now an urbanized country, to some degree, with a literate populace that uh, is now going to be thrown, hurled under the jackboot of the same totalitarian force that we, or religious totalitarian force that we extirpated, pulled out. We did go into the country to remove this regime. And over the 20 years since that happened, it is an entirely different country. It has been a generation since the Taliban ran the country. The idea that we are somehow reverting to place zero and that the Taliban are just back and nothing is different, that's part of the horror that we are not really facing yet, which is that people got a generation of a taste of whatever they got, corruption, uh, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of things, all kinds of bad changes and death and, you know, civil war and things that are bad. And I'm not going to say that they're not. But uh, the last 20 years have represented a revolution of rising expectations for the people in Afghanistan. And they are now being hurled back into the handmaid's tale. All we ever hear about is, oh, the handmaid's tale. Oh my God. Someone suggests that a parent be told that a child is going to get an abortion. And we are now living in a total, we're living in a religious totalitarian theocracy. We're about to see what happens when a, when an urbanized, educated population is subsumed under the jackboot. This happened in 1979 in Iran. It is now happening in Afghanistan. And, you know, this solipsism that Noah talks about is very potent here. Afghans are not literally dying in their effort to get out of the country with us because we didn't improve the place. That's exactly right. It's a, it's something that's there's an insinuation on the part of retrenchment advocates right and left, actually, uh, that the notion here that, that the Taliban's reacclimation of the country is something of a universal acclamation. 
uh, on the part of, of Afghans. This was a, a military operation by a, a small clique uh, that has uh, re recon executed the reconquest of this country. It has support outside of major urban centers, yes. But then you see people, you know, throngs, not just streaming the airport, but, you know, uh, cascading again, you know, crushing against uh, the borders in Pakistan and Central Asia. There's a refugee crisis underway because this is not something that the Afghan people wanted. Um, Tucker Carlson said this the other day in this really obnoxious uh, monologue where he talked about how this, you know, what, what the Afghan people have rejected here with the Taliban's reacclamation of the country is, is a grotesque neoliberal program. He said, Afghans don't hate their own masculinity. They don't think it's toxic. They like the patriarchy. Some of their women like it too. So now they're getting it all back as though they engineered this. They did not. They're occupied. They are under siege. They're, this is not something they wanted. I mean, the Taliban is not a, this is not a, you know, indigenous civil war. The Taliban are a you know are a are a faction inside the country. This is like saying that and the Bolsheviks, right? And this is like saying that the Bolsheviks, you know, uh, launched a civil war. The Bolsheviks were a faction in a political, you know, complicated, highly complicated political morass who managed to get a leg up. And the thing that we have to keep remembering is that had we not done this. And Trump's to blame and Biden's to blame. Had we not done this, this wouldn't have happened. That's the problem with this idea that what, what we have, we, you know, the only thing that is left to us is, you know, permanent occupation. We don't have a permanent occupation in South Korea. I know we keep using this, you know, example. We don't have a permanent occupation in Western Europe no one mentioned other countries where we have American stationed. What we were was the cork in the bottle preventing what has just happened from happening. And the cost of keeping that cork in is going to turn out to have been so much radically smaller than the cost or whatever theoretical savings was garnered by pulling the cork out and that we have cut and run. But this is this is, I think, why what the Biden administration and and the uh, media people like Ezra Klein, who are carrying water for them right now, are relying on is that Americans don't understand that scale, the scale that 1500 or 2000 troops is not an occupation. They're, they're trying to condition their readers to believe that any zero troops is the only acceptable thing. Uh, anything less is an occupation. And I think, unfortunately, people don't follow these kinds of things in a granular way like those of us who who uh, uh, do this for a living do so that message actually does fall on 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 uh, uh, receptive ears the same thing with the cost right the cost is often brought up now look how much money we wasted we wasted all this money I, I like you John I disagree that that was money wasted but the other thing that they are avoiding here is a, with the discussion of values and honor we did some we've done something deeply dishonorable as a nation withdrawing the way that we did and abandoning people who we committed to through a visa process and through giving them our word for 20 years that we would protect that is dishonorable so you can argue all you want about whether there should be zero troops or 2000 troops or, or whatever in Afghanistan but the way we are doing it actually is the point here I think and I think that's why it's captured Americans you know minds so much not just the horrific images and to, to Noah's point that one of the, the the kid who fell from the plane was a kid he was a teenager he was a young Afghan who basically 
was so fearful of what his life would be like under a Taliban regime that he risked his life and lost it to try to escape. I mean, so the dishonor, so we have two very practical things here. We have a, or one practical and one um, moral, theoretical, I don't know what you want to call it, more uh, abstract thing. Uh, the dishonor. What does it mean for a country to act dishonorably and what does the future hold? This is a dishonorable world. We deal with dishonorable players all the time. The notion that we should have honor when we negotiate with people who are dishonorable you know, is a is a is a complicated thing in in terms of foreign policy and national position. So dishonor, I think, has two faces. One of which is, what does it mean when we go around saying, you know, we'll have your back? Like people are like, no, you won't. We now know it. There's no question. So therefore, the kind of intangible soft power you can get from saying that has now been dissipated for a generation, or at least for ten years, or something like that. Then there is the question of what dishonor does to us as a country, and that's way more uh, complicated. I mean, uh, I was 14 when Saigon fell. The late 70s were not a good time for the United States. And if you think that the two were not intrinsically related, you are very much mistaken. Now, one of the reasons that Saigon fell was that the conditions that led to Saigon's fall uh, were domestic conditions that then bloomed pretty badly in the late 1970s. Um, so you can say that here too, that the problem here is a soul sickness in the United States that led to a loss of any kind of consensus on the value of this Afghan mission and the honor that we wish to maintain as a country. And since we have now held something higher than that honor in dishonor, uh, in the dishonor that we have pulled out with, we now find ourselves about to learn what the consequences of that are going to be. They're not going to be the same. Everything is different. Life is different. There's no Soviet Union. It's all very complicated. Uh, but you cannot act dishonorably and not have it have a soul-sickening effect on the body politic. We are going to have this stain on us. It's just a fact. And I, I, I mean... You know, um, there even those of us who, you know, I think are thinking the right things about this are not going to be immune from this stain. It's like you're going to think things are going to happen in the world and you're going to think, well, we should do something or we should this. And it's like, nah, we're not we're, we're, we're in no position. We can't even lift a finger there. Like, who's going to who's going to support that? Who are we anymore anyway? And that kind of loss of 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 American self-confidence and the confidence that what we do in the world can have practical positive consequences, not only for the rest of the world, but for us is again, something that's going to have to be regained at great and painful cost. I fear. Um, so Abe, let me ask you this. If we have this dishonor problem, uh, the, the voices like Ezra Klein, who basically say the dishonor began with Iraq. The dishonor began in 2001. The dishonor began with our response to September 11th. I, I just wonder at the consequences of that mindset because Ezra Klein is a reflection of a certain type of liberal consensus. That's why I brought him up. I'm not bringing him because I want to have a conversation about Ezra Klein, who I think is a contemptible thinker. 
and an embarrassing and a sort of a contemptible embarrassing person, but he is an object lesson in something. And the question is, where do these people go when something else bad happens? Somewhere, I mean, you know, how, where are they well, going to do when there's a when there's a resurgence of terrorism or something like that? These people were around September 11th, 2001, um, and they said the same things then. Uh, there were people who thought we shouldn't go re- respond militarily to having been uh, attacked, um, and the entire country came down on them. No, they had no purchase in the culture or in our politics. Um, because it's an eccentric and, frankly, despicable view. Um, It is easy for them to play at these games when we're not actually being attacked. Uh, It's when something happens, they don't enjoy the the sort of popularity that they do now. And I just want to say on this point of whether or not we've improved or remade Afghanistan, Part of the reason we're hearing precious little from the squad right now is because for them to acknowledge what's happening would mean that they have to acknowledge that America is a force for good in the world. Uh, And the reason Afghans are clamoring to get out and trying to kill themselves to get out is because the Americans are no longer going to be there. And Americans, they know that Americans were a force for good in the world. I mean, implicit in this piece is this desperate sort of wish casting um, to the effect of that. And you can hear it in the tone is that this is, you know, it's past tense. This is all over. It's over. It's behind us. It's time to pick ourselves up and invest every, you know, dollar that we have into an overexpansive welfare state. So everybody can just you know succumb to complacency. Uh, that's what they really want to happen. It's not going to happen. This doesn't end on August 31st. This no, doesn't I'm- end on September 11th. This doesn't end for a very long time. Well, all these Americans, all these green card holders, all these eligible evacuees we're leaving behind, we're not going to stop hearing from them. And it's only going to get worse to say nothing of the security conditions that we're ushering in, you know, a post-Vietnam style era in which the Soviet Union engages in military activities in Central America and the invasion of Afghanistan. All those consequences are coming years out. But in the near term, in the near term, in the next couple of weeks, we're still going to be hearing about a horror show that we have allowed to metastasize. Well, day, day one of the, of what, of, of our future uh, post Afghanistan withdrawal actually started, I would say the clock started yesterday when the U S government had to issue a warning telling Americans who are around the airport to leave because of a real imminent terrorist threat, an attack on the airport itself and the people standing around it. That yeah, is the future. The evacuation is functionally over, over. Because they said you can't get to the airport anymore, imminent terrorist threat. They've already started pulling out troops. They've already yeah. started a retrograde action. The Pentagon, the CNN said, we have 36 hours to execute this this thing. And Kirby said, no, we're still going to do it as long as we can get everybody out. But they have no choice but to evacuate, stop the evacuation of civilians in order to evacuate U.S. troops and material. NATO nations are already saying we're, stop, we're, we're done and we're leaving our own people yeah. behind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is functionally over. Yeah. Well, they, before they, next Tuesday. Uh, the, the, you know, yeah, the, the, the State Department yesterday issued another warning saying, don't come to Americans. Don't come to the airport. If you're at the airport, leave. Um, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm stuck on this point about what will happen if there's an attack again and the sort of the Ezra Kleins. Um, something that, that, that happens when we are attacked 
the same people who are now critical of American involvement and blaming uh, that for our woes said things around 9-11 and will say it if we are attacked at some very distant point in the future. Well, this is because we haven't been involved with the rest of the world. You see, we just treated the Middle East like a gas station. That was the big line. We didn't get involved in their politics. We didn't get, we were, you know, we just think we can take what we want and leave the rest. That's, that's our problem. And this is what happens when you treat the rest of the world that way. So no matter what we do, see, this is, this is, the, this is what it gets down to. It's, it's they have to maintain some sense of hostility toward America and the world. So if we're involved, that creates problems. If we mind our own business, that's chauvinism and that creates problems too. I mentioned this last week, but, you know, when Saigon fell in 1975 and the North Vietnamese took over the South and then uh, initiated a five-year reign of terror, transporting millions of people to re-education camps, to rice paddies, uh, eventually leading to this gigantic multi-million person flotilla seeking to escape uh, in the South China Sea, you know, several years later, there was no social media. There were no photographs. So we didn't know all that much about what was happening. Stuff was emanating uh, out of the uh, Vietnamese community in the United States who were somehow getting word out the way that people got word out in the old days before, you know, the way people got word out about the Holocaust and stuff like that, that, you know, was invisible, you know, to a lot of people. Uh, that is not going to be the case here. We are going to see these horrors, uh, you know, and th- hope, you know, look, hope against hope, 5% chance somehow the Taliban is moderated and isn't going to do this. And they are this thing that the spokesman said the other day about how what they really need to do is to train these fighters on how to treat women respectfully and what to do in terms of being, you know, part of a more reasonable approach since they're so hardened that they've all been out in the field for 20 years, all of that. Let's just say that they mean that and it can happen. And, you know, hopefully that can happen. But let's assume that it's not going to happen. And, and, and the assumption then would be that they are going to have to retrain the country to be under their sway and their, ja- and their jackboot. We are going to know everything that is going on there in real time as it is happening, every hour there is going to be a body blow to the American uh, psyche, to every to the hundreds of thousands of soldiers and you know sailors and airmen and Marines who were in country in that country for twenty years and worked with the Afghan people and their families who couldn't sleep for the year that they were deployed in Helmand or whatever. We're going to hear this and hear this and hear this and hear this. And we're going to try not to. Media is going to go dark and we're not going to hear about, you know, it's not going to be on MSNBC and we're not going to see it anywhere and all of that. But there are going to be message boards and there are going to be Reddits and there are going to be Facebook posts and there are going to be photos flying around all over the place. And we are going to be living through the visible consequences of this dishonor that we have that 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 we are responsible for and a dishonor that was chosen by us or by our president and by his predecessor it was a dishonor that was chosen as i said the day that this started all joe biden had to do was nothing and we would not be here now all he had to do was nothing and we would not be here now what would happen in five years if we pulled out in five years we don't know 
because that's all an assumption, and it's part of this interesting assumption in the Ezra Klein piece that somehow we're just back to we're just back to 2001. We're not back to 2001. The world is a different place. But yeah, but he is assuming that the world is a different place. He's assuming that Americans are different people, that we will accept the surrender and sacrifice of U.S. passport holders and legal permanent residents behind enemy lines you know, to the mercies of a vengeful Islamist militia. That's a big bet. Um, it wasn't the bet that it wouldn't have been the bet that you could make in on September 10th, 2001. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a good bet now, but that, that is the bet that the world has changed and that we have become much more complacent and much more callous and, and welcoming of American decline. Uh, that's, that's putting a lot of chips on the table. But that, but that feeds into something we've been talking about on and off for the last, uh, week about the messaging from the Biden White House about who they are going to be leaving behind. I mean, they, they forget the Afghan SIV holders. They stopped thinking about them a week ago. Um, but about Americans who are still in country and, and offline, Noah, you've, you've uh, noted this several times where you can see that they're talking already shaping a narrative wherein anyone left behind at this point, it's their own fault. Now, let me just remind people that includes Voice of America employees. It includes school children who were there on a trip. But this narrative, will it'll be interesting to watch the media cohere around this idea, and you can see bits and pieces of it already, that anyone who got stuck there, it's their own damn fault because they didn't heed the warnings to get out for the last few months. Yeah, I, I've actually written this up for the website today. So by the time you hear this, go to the website. You can actually read these these quotes. The formulation that this White House has been using from Jen Psaki to Jake Sullivan to Joe Biden, that any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. The notion here that they're trying to say that anybody who who didn't get out wanted to be there. Now, there are some that we've heard Americans in Afghanistan who will not sacrifice their partners, their friends, the families with small children to the mercies of the Taliban. There are those. Um, understandably so. Um, but there are plenty of others. Reports are very clear that they feel trapped. They cannot access the airport. They're told not to access the airport. They've been beaten. They've been spat upon. They've been bludgeoned. They've been blocked from accessing American exit points. Um, those are the people that we're leaving behind. And you heard American Charge Affairs in Afghanistan, Ross Wilson yesterday in an interview with CBS News anchor Nora O'Donnell, say, quote, we put out repeated warnings every three weeks to Americans going back to, I think, March or April, each one in stronger terms, leave now, leave immediately. He continued, quote, people chose not to leave. That's their business. That's their right. We regret now that many of them find themselves in a position that they'd rather not be in. And, and he catches himself and says, well, well, we'll try to help them. So he kind of was aware of the grotesque insinuation in his remarks that this is all on them. But you see it bubbling up from Twitter. You see it in, in columns from the, the most shameless allies of this White House that this really is their fault. This talking point, I think, survives for all of 24 hours before it explodes on the tarmac. But it is a, a sign of abject desperation that they're even attempting it. And by the way, why didn't Americans rush out months ago? Because the administration had been broadcasting that there was going to be no immediate collapse of Afghanistan. The exactly. president said it was very unlikely that the Taliban would take over the country. The, the they thought embassy, they were going to have perhaps as much as a year and a that half. Was, that was July 8th that the yeah. president said the Taliban is not taking over yes. the country. Right. July 4th, the embassy, which last I checked was operated by the State Department, said we are going to remain open. There is no plans to close. Right. We have, in fact, quote, we have developed security plans to safely protect personnel and facilities. So you're getting a lot of mixed messages. If you were just walking, you know, the notion here that all these Americans, these 
NGO workers, civil servants, American government employees, aid workers, all these people were hanging on State Department uh, memos versus listening to what they were being told by the embassy in Kabul is just non just nonsense. That's okay. nonsense. I want to I want to talk about some other analogies uh, that are going on that are particularly disgraceful. But before I do that, let me talk to you about Made In. Uh, how does your favorite restaurant consistently make such delicious food? The short answer, they have access to the right kitchen tools. With Made In's professional quality cookware and kitchenware, anyone is capable of making restaurant quality food at home. Made In produces professional quality cookware and knives for those who love to cook. They source the finest materials and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Made-in products are made to last, and they offer a lifetime guarantee. Their cookware distributes heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven, and their knives are fully forged, perfectly balanced, and stay sharp. They have 32,000 five-star reviews, and their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made-in. Better cookware for better meals. And right now, Made-in is offering our listeners... 15% off your first order with promo code commentary. This is the best discount available anywhere online for made-in products. Go to madeincookware, that's M-A-D-I-N cookware.com slash commentary, and use promo code commentary for 15% off your first order. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com slash commentary. Use promo code commentary. So we've heard uh, these... Uh, weird efforts by the administration to uh, praise itself and praise American forces for the um, for the uh, logistics, the successful logistics of the withdrawal and the evacuation. This is the largest airlift in history, we are being told. This is, you know, we are doing, it's amazing. We've saved 15,000 15, people got out today and all of that, right? So I just want to say one thing about the Dunkirk analogy, because oddly, because that's what people are saying. It's like Dunkirk, right? I mean, that's, it, this is a modern Dunkirk. Dunkirk was a retreat from a war that was still being fought. Uh, the British sent troops to France to try to keep France from taking, uh, keep Germany from taking over France. They failed. They were trapped on a beach, and this, um, you know, brilliant jury-rigged system of commercial boat craft and all that got them off and got them back safely home so that they could fight another day. It wasn't so that they could go home and stay home and sit there and get bombed by the Germans for years and not do what they could to destroy Nazi Germany and, 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 and take revenge for the humiliation that they, that they faced at Dunkirk. And of course, the, you know, one of the most famous speeches of the 20th century delivered by uh, Winston Churchill, you know, where he said, this is not the end. This is not the, you know, this is not the beginning. This is the, you know, this is the end of the beginning. Um, And uh, we will, all we have is blood, soil, sweat, and tears. And uh, we suffered a terrible defeat here, but this is not the end for us. That is not what's going on here we are withdrawing we are we are pulling out we have decided to lose a war not to win the war not to not to retreat in war so that your forces remain alive so that they can be sent to north africa and fight against rommel in north africa 
Well, and the the other the other reason the analogy doesn't hold when the administration tries to use it to to kind of whitewash its behavior is that at least at Dunkirk, there were private citizens uh, working with the government towards a common goal of rescuing these citizens. What we have going on now is actually a private groups, private citizens in the U.S. and elsewhere actively working, having to work against how the government is, is handling this withdrawal to try to desperately rescue people. So it's it, it really the whole analogy is ridiculous. Let's go to analogy number two. This is a logistical triumph on the order of the Berlin airlift. But what we did in the Berlin airlift was go into Berlin with materiel, food, water, things to make sure that this city blockaded by the Soviets could survive and that there would not be mass starvation on the streets of Berlin and to keep the Soviets from taking over the entirety of Berlin. It, again, was not a withdrawal and us going home and letting the Soviets take Berlin. Um, I don't know whether people use these analogies simply because they're facile and they, you know, they just sort of come to mind, so they're thrown out there. But each of them actually, when you think about it for more than 15 seconds or know anything about history, and even saying you need to know something about history, like it's even embarrassing. This shouldn't even be something that people need to study. You know, we should know it in our marrow makes it worse. It's like vastly worse. The shame, the dishonor, and the and the and the moral moral and practical idiocy of what's going on here are made ineffably more horrifying when you think about the analogies that are being drawn to try to defend it. <clears throat> yeah, the notion that we should all be proud of the Herculean effort that was and it, and it was Herculean to uh, exfiltrate as many citizens as possible. And we don't have accurate numbers on this. You know, it's approaching 100, according to Pentagon, 100,000 now, uh, approximately 4,500 of whom are Americans. Um, And that's, you know, pretty big feat. It's it's a substantial feat. It's also an effort to mitigate the disaster that was engineered by the White House. So, yeah, a little bit of credit is diluted, I guess, by the fact that you brought this condition upon yourself. Uh, it's a sort of thing that they're just, they're just, they're shopping these lines, right? They're just retailing whatever will stick to the wall here. Um, and, and you know that eventually this, probably within 72 hours, this becomes a circular firing squad. The State Department is already just trying to cover its butt with this whole, you know, we send all these ominous cables. That's just institutional butt covering. The intelligence agencies doing the same thing. The Pentagon will do the same thing. And eventually the White House will come under fire from within its own its own executive agencies and it'll start lashing out at its agencies and then it'll become a circular firing squad a very familiar pattern will emerge and we're we're only hours outside of that these arguments and these analogies uh arguments asserting that we're doing something tremendous here and something something noble and wonderful they're going to age so poorly the moment that the deadline is over and there are americans left in Afghanistan. We are going to look back at this two-week period, three-week period, whatever it was, and with disbelief that people were arguing that this is great, this is going well, we're doing this right. It was some of the American uh, citizens' faults who, who didn't who didn't snap into shape. How dare uh, uh, American lawmakers go over and try to see what's going on? How dare the media uh, try to try to try to question what was happening. We're going to look back in disbelief that there was but, this huge effort 
to defend this thing. But this comes from the top. The tone of this is coming from the top. Look at what Biden did yesterday. He was joking. He made a joke. Talk about, I mean, you know, the, the people make jokes about after someone dies and you say, oh, too soon. Talk, I mean, we're in the middle of this and he is cracking jokes like, oh yeah, I'd be the first one I'd call if I was stuck. That's not funny. That was That's to Peter even, Alexander at MS, or, yes. or NBC News. Yeah. It was horrifying. Ken, I mean, if he thinks that he's at the stage of this where he can just laugh it off, he really is completely uh, gone in terms of understanding the uh, after effects of this policy. I mean, you know, uh, I, I want to repeat that in all of this, I don't want people to think that we are summoning the whirlwind or that we are hoping that this whirlwind is summoned. You know I am, I'm sorry, can I interrupt uh, you there? Sure. Because that is one of the most disgusting, noxious talking points that is, again, by the people who are in the bargaining stage of this nightmare or like who acknowledge that the individuals like us who acknowledge the horrors we're witnessing actually enjoy them. The people like us who, who, who see a nightmare on the horizon barreling towards us with alacrity that is just a, quite alarming, um, that we actually want that to happen because it would somehow induce uh, policymakers to pursue outcomes that we like. Um, that, that is one of the most craven psycholog efforts of psychological projection um, that and you see it a lot in these kind of crises when an administration around whom you've built your identity, you know, the, the identity for a lot of people now is that this was supposed to be the competent administration. This was going to be the guys, they were, these were the guys who were going to get it all right. And that's just falling apart around them. And so the, you know, talk about an existential crisis. They're in, having an existential crisis and doing their best to project it on people who notice the disaster that's unfolding all around them. It is, it's uh, really obnoxious. Uh, you know, the, the, this is a very good point. And it gets to another really distressing aspect of this. And I want to get back to the, sort of the original Ezra Klein point, which is uh, what were we supposed to do? Permanently occupy Afghanistan? And I'm going to go back to this. The answer is we don't occupy Afghanistan. We haven't occupied Afghanistan since 2002. And yes, we should not have done this and anybody we should not have done it and we now have done it and there are going to be consequences for having done it the consequences may include having to undo it i mean this is a this is a conversation that noah and i have been having over the last two weeks or that you know this this real we are not leaving if we find out that there are tens of thousands of americans still there Clearly, we are going to abandon the Afghans. I mean, that, that's, that, that, that's a horror of its own. But if we find out that there are 10,000 Americans still there who were unable to get out, Abe. Breaking news. Uh, yes. Looking at Twitter, John Kirby, John, John Kirby's Twitter account. We can that's, the spokesman, that's the spokesman for the Pentagon. We can confirm an explosion outside Kabul airport. Casualties are unclear at this time. We will provide additional details when we can. Okay, here's another, uh, just briefly, here's another thing that you're hearing from people who so want any sort of talking point to say that this is going well. No Americans have died. Yeah, sure, Afghans have died. Yeah, sure, Germans were in a firefight. Yeah, 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 whatever. But no Americans have died, right? As though this debacle lacks an American body count and is therefore something that can be uh, celebrated. Um, that talking point 
is really on borrowed time. Well, apparently, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's maybe it's over, past but... its due date just can, because of what I've just said. Yeah. Can I can I just add one thing to to because I think Noah's point about how a, a lot of the people, both working for the uh, Biden administration and those who support it, have a kind of they're in an identity crisis right now. I just want to I, I sent you guys this last night, but I uh, talk about more recent history that that's being conveniently memory hold by a lot of these folks. Do you remember when Biden was first picking his national security team? So uh, people were tweeting things like there was a tweet that a guy said, you know, I'm one big thing that jumps out from these early national security appointees. They're all incredibly kind people. That's not something we usually comment on. It's a big deal in a field with reputation for being cutthroat and especially on the heels of the Trump team that was retreated by Samantha Power, who said this is so rare and so deeply, thrillingly true. It was not that long ago that these people were tweeting about the kindness of Biden's national security appointees. How are they squaring that circle now? How is this kindness in effect in policy that they have uh, implemented in Afghanistan? Well, they have really nice birthday parties for their kids. I mean, you know, I, I look <laughs> when you're when you're Tony Blinken, you're the Secretary of State, and you you either. You're either complicit, you were part of the policymaking apparatus, or you're, or you were actually like an internal quiet critic of pulling out whoever, whatever line he took. And we'll find out from Bob Woodward at some point uh, who lined up where on this. Um, we don't know yet. Maybe we'll find out sooner than Bob Woodward. But you know, when he said, "Yeah, look, I'm a dad, and it just guts me to see this thing about a, a toddler being trampled." You know what? Spare me. Spare me. I'm sorry. Like, everybody's a dad. You don't get to play the dad card. You're playing the dad card? The hell is that? You're the Secretary of State of the United States. When, you know, you 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 say something else. You don't try to make people feel, oh, oh, you know, he's so empathetic. You know, that is that is preposterous. You are not running for, you are not kissing babies as the Secretary of State. You are not doing that. You are supposed to stand there and dispassionately represent the country in front of the country. I understand they've got a hard hand to play, but I actually thought that was kind of contemptible. It's like, it's like using your kids as a, as a shield and he's not, elected officials do it. You can sort of understand because they can be punished for doing it. By voters, and if you're an unelected official, you do not get to use your children as a as a as a distraction tool. They, I feel like the entire Biden national security establishment and press corps, because Jen Psaki does this all the time too, with regard to kids and COVID, should read Paul Bloom's Against Empathy, which is this sort of book yeah. that came out a few years ago that was about what he called rational compassion, and it's actually it, it, it's very effective at showing you when people are are deploying this kind of you know instrumental empathy versus real. Rational compassion. By the way, uh, in the early going of this disaster, uh, I noticed Joe Biden mentioned his son Bo's service repeatedly when he would talk about how, you know, believe me, I, I understand what these what the military is, has, is suffering right now and has gone through and what this means to them. Um, he you know, but he's goes to that well. Uh, well, again, he's he is a he is a professional politician, and people can evaluate them and vote for or against him based on based on that conduct. There is some outlet, right, uh, for public disgust if he goes too far with that. I would say this, which is, he ends every speech by saying "God bless our troops," and he talks about our troops and their sacrifices, and taking uh, taking something taking a, a mission in which 
Hundreds of thousands of Americans behaved admirably, heroically, and in the service of their country, and choosing to lose it and make their accomplishment into ashes, uh, he maybe should stop talking about God blessing our troops because, um, you know, I know people who fought there who haven't slept for weeks because they are thinking of the, of what they went through, of, of, of how it's been turned into dust and the people that they worked with, their translators, their, the people they trained, all of that. And, I, you know, that's, this is wonderful for him. What does he think? Just throwing money at veterans affairs. That's how you bless your troops. You bless your troops by not making a mockery of what they have done for this country. And with that, let me try to lighten the mood a little bit to talk to you about bowl and branch sheets. Look, uh, we all have uncompromising standards in other parts of our lives. So why skip out on quality where we spend a third of our lives sleeping? The husband and wife team that started Bowl and Branch realized no sheets on the market met their standards for quality. So they created their own super soft and expertly crafted signature sheets. They feel great. They, they nestle you. They're, they're smooth. They're warm, but they breathe. They're just great. You can experience uncompromising comfort with the best-selling 100% organic signature hem sheets from Bowen Branch. The Cloudweight Super Soft Sateen Weave gets softer with every wash. Crafted to the highest standards and attention to detail from sourcing to packaging. Scott and Missy Tannen co-founded Bowen Branch after being disappointed by hundreds of subpar linen options. And they use manufacturing partners that are family-owned businesses which share the same values and standards. To experience an entirely new standard of comfort, visit bowlandbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code commentary. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com, promo code commentary. Um, Can we just spend five minutes talking about COVID for a minute? Because uh, the perfect storm is going on here in some odd ways in which you get a sense of how the Biden administration and liberal American liberals in general have lost the thread of this conversation. The more we hear about the Delta variant, the more we watch these surges, the more we see these death tolls rising, the more the data come back, and some came back yesterday from the New York City Department of Health, that everybody who is getting it, almost everybody who is getting it in a way that involves the healthcare system, I'm not saying people who test positive, because now you have to test all the time to do all kinds of things so people test positive. I'm talking about where they get sick enough that they have to involve the healthcare system. Everybody that this is happening to, more than 95% of the cases are unvaccinated. And yet what we are talking about now are controls for the vaccinated. They're not really just controls of fine. They're supposed to involve the unvaccinated. However, are the unvaccinated masking? We don't know. Are the unvaccinated unvaccinated because uh, they're afraid of COVID, but they don't want to get a vaccine, so they're going to carry themselves the way we all carried ourselves in April or May of 2020 and mask up and socially distance and do all that to avoid getting it without having to get a vaccination? We don't really know. I think we can presume that a lot of them have decided that this is all nonsense and they're not, and they're gonna, they're gonna like risk it or 
you know, live the way they're going to live and treat it like the flu or whatever. And, and they are the people who are responsible for this surge. And yet, yet again, we have schools starting. We have kids who are the least at risk from getting COVID being compelled to mask. We have vaccinated kids who are being compelled to mask. That's the case with my kids. And they're going back to school. They're going to have to mask with full vaccination, double vaxxed. Uh, you know, uh, they're and and by the way, remember the, the, they got they got vaccinated relatively late in the process. Like my kids finished their vaccinations in June uh, or the end of May, and so you know the eight month booster for them on Pfizer doesn't come until mi- next year. Um, they're going to have to wear a mask, uh, and this is all because of the kind of general consensus opinion, and um, and and I don't really understand. It, it is almost as though uh, what you're trying to do is enforce social norms uh, on on people who don't need the social norms enforced because they've obeyed the social norms. They've, they've done what they're supposed to do. And every piece of data we have, notice, by the way, the breakthrough infection mania of like three or four weeks ago. I don't know why, maybe I'm missing something, but I'm not hearing a lot about breakthrough infections. You know why? Because 95% of the people in hospital are unvaccinated. That's why. Well, and the breakthrough infections are fairly mild for the pe- vaccinated people who get them. It's, I mean, I, I know a couple, I know a handful of people who've had breakthrough infections. It's like a bad cold or a mild flu for a day or two. That's, that's right. But the I'm brilliance just saying, of the right, vaccine. Right, right. So, um, Biden is, this is Biden's, Biden is going to be tagged with this one way or another. So desperate efforts to blame Ron DeSantis for the entire country having a Delta surge notwithstanding. Uh, I just think they're losing the thread. Like this is their, they've lost contact with the lives of ordinary people that they're worried about is a, is this reconciliation package. They're, they're, they're doing counterintuitive things in relation to COVID. They're doing counterintuitive things in relation to the humiliation that they have placed the country in on Afghanistan. And I, I don't know where this where this goes from here. I mean, this is a kind of epic multi-front collapse of sort of reasonable conduct on the part of a president. We thought we saw it as bad as you could get it with Trump in 2017. Even if you like Trump, People were unnerved by how chaotic everything was. But this is something different because these are policy, horrible policy mistakes, it seems to me. Anybody got any? Well, and and I think we're starting now finally to see uh, uh, some of the previous uh, efforts for COVID-based relief coming to fruition. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but locally, I've just seen on Nextdoor constant streams of ads from local businesses just desperate to hire. And some of them can't even reopen because they literally do not have enough people who will come and work. So that, that extension of unemployment benefits, which, have, which we know to have a, a dampening effect on people going back to work, getting their jobs. But we also know now that a lot of the debt relief, the rent relief, remember all that, all the, you know, Cori Bush staging her very perf- 
performative thing on the steps of the Capitol about how, you know, landlords are evil. We must give people rent relief. We've barely distributed the amount of money that's already been been uh, budgeted for that. We're not actually doing the things that we claimed, you know, that we've already uh, legislated. And now this huge new bill making its way through Congress. I'm not sure that people are going to give and shouldn't give the Democrats the benefit of the doubt about this actually having a positive effect on the country. It's I mean, the polls are all over the place right now. But I agree. I think that they they there's a lot of flailing. There's a lot of flailing, not just with Biden, but with the Democrats in Congress as well in terms of messaging. But because they're so at sea, they do seem to have convinced themselves that this reconciliation package with the entire Democratic agenda balled into a a so-called budget bill isn't just about what it'll do for the country, but what it'll do for them. They, they really think it's like a life raft. It's, it's, first of all, it's all they have agency over. They, they're buffeted by events and don't know how to address any of it. And most have acknowledged that the amount of capital we're just injecting into the economy is overheating the economy and creating inflationary pressure. They know it. They know it all. But they don't have anything else they can do but pass this giant bill just to keep their coalition in line, even though that's kind of falling apart, the revolt of the moderates in the House notwithstanding, we still have objections to this thing in the Senate that are going to be difficult to overcome. And I don't think they're going to be overcome in its current iteration, but it's all they can do, even though it's probably going to just accelerate the conditions that they find themselves in with voters rejecting you know, the, what, the, what they're presiding over and thinking they're doing too much and, and you know, creating, harming the economy. Joe Biden's approval ratings are, are cratering, not just because of COVID, not just because of Afghanistan, but his ratings in the economy are underwater. People we need know to, that this is not going well. We need to stress this point about Biden's ratings because the one thing we know about polling is that it undercounts Republicans and conservatives. So if these numbers are going down, they're not going down because Republicans and conservatives really, really, really dislike what Biden is doing. It's because the coalition of people, that's independents and Democrats who got him elected, are 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 feeling discomfited. And I wanted to make one interesting or one it's interesting to me. I don't know if it's an interesting point. That that's self-aggrandizing. But uh, one of the moderate, one of the nine moderates in the House, if just go into this really quickly. So the mo- moderates in the House said, we want a separate vote on the um, infrastructure bill, the, the hard infrastructure bill. Uh, we will agree, we're not going to vote. If you say they have to be voted on together, we're going to kill the budget reconciliation, the three and a half trillion dollar package. And they basically got their way. Um, there is going to be a vote on September 27th or something like that on the hard infrastructure bill, according to Nancy Pelosi. One of them said, we are you know, voting for the, I don't even know how you describe it, the budget, the budget resolution, right, which is the thing that allows the conversation to go forward in the drafting of the bill. Um, but, uh, you know, we need... So that we hope we, we're going to pat, we're going to vote on the infrastructure bill, and then we hope we'll have a bill that we can sign on budget reconciliation that can pass the Senate. That can pass the Senate. So the moderates in the House are now depending on Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, to kill the three and a half trillion dollar bill. And you know what? They're going to do it. They're going to do it. And in the end, Nancy Pelosi will have wasted the the velvet, 
the 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 iron fist inside the Gucci glove, Nancy Pelosi will have wasted three months and untold amounts of political capital humoring the idea that the American people are going to support or that there, there's going to be some kind of forced passage of three and a half trillion dollars in new spending. Um, it's kind of amazing when you think about it. And the point is they're using cinema and, and mansion as a weapon because they can, because they, they actually, they want to do it. They want to kill the bill. They want to say, I killed the bill. But you know what? If they both somehow, you know, drop dead in the next three weeks and there was no one to do this, they would end up doing it. This is this is the Hobson's choice that they've been placed in. They have fortunately they have this, you know, they have this island they can go to where Mansion and Cinema save them from having to be the vo- the people who killed the reconciliation bill. But they didn't do this in order not to send the signal that should everything horrible happen and there be no safe harbor for them, that they would pull the they would they would pull the trigger just like AOC and the squad threatened to pull the trigger saying we won't have a vote on the hard infrastructure unless we have a vote at the same time on the budget reconciliation package. Well, this but, is I mean, Dems it, in disarray. This is literally right. Dems in disarray. And it's a joke that Dave Weigel made on Twitter all the time that Republicans love to say the Dems are in disarray and then he would show that they're not really in disarray. But this is disarray. Well, I mean, the, the fact that it's it's ever clearer that Pelosi's entire governing strategy relies on the island of misfit senators, you know, these two people who who exercise this control and, and thank God they do from my perspective. But um, yeah, I do. Uh, the, the strenuous efforts to continue to see Nancy Pelosi as some sort of brilliant strategist are are failing. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, we also don't know what the effect the, the the effect, the political, domestic political effect of the next month, if COVID doesn't settle down and if the things that we are terrified of happening start to happen, the idea that the Democrats are going to be in the same political condition that they were, that they are in today uh, is preposterous. Uh, you know, uh, there is going to be a run for the exits. There, the, Biden will hit numbers that Trump hit at Charlottesville time and who knows what the, what the, what the rap, what the consequences of that will be politically for them. Well, I mean, they're making the case in all these things against big involved government. I mean, you know, the American people are looking at all this and, and, and th- those who are sympathetic to activist government and big spending and overarching uh, mandates and that are looking at this and thinking, uh, this with, with, well, I've gotten this wrong. These people don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Remember who swung, who swung back and forth and back and forth, right? Suburban independents, suburban women, right? Republican, then Democrat, then they voted for Biden instead of Trump. And they're, they're just up for grabs. Uh, the, 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 the electoral coalition, involves people who really are up for grabs and the notion that they are going to be patient uh, with this um, and, and, and accepting of this, even if they don't like Afghanistan, even if they don't like that we were in Afghanistan, whatever, it was no skin off their nose that we were there or not. That's the fundamental point. Whereas, by the way, COVID is not no skin off their nose. COVID involves and affects everybody 
And we also don't know what the political consequences of that are, are, are going to be. What, one quick point to the how those the suburban, particularly female voters, feel about Afghanistan if they don't care about the specifics of policy. Go look at these suburban counties, places like Loudoun County, Fairfax County, Virginia. These are the up for grabs, you know, uh, very much bellwethers of the, of the next few election cycles. And look at how much volunteer organizing they are doing to bring uh, uh, supplies and relief and, and things for these Afghan refugees. That tells you what you need to know. Forget about the broader policy and foreign policy arguments. They care about people and they care about what's going on in their schools in particular. So if we start seeing more school closures and union teachers union recalcitrance, that's going to affect this. There are a lot of kind of up in the air, big, huge things right now that are going to impact those voters, not just for 2022, but for 2024. And if for them, you know, Joe Biden core value proposition was to be an anti-Trump, was to, you know, exude empathy and be this warm light, white light uh, in stark contrast to, you know, the former president. He's really sacrificed almost all of that brand by being so utterly jaded and callous and cruel to the people who devoted themselves to the American mission over the last 20 years and subsequently American citizens and passport holders and green card holders and just saying, you know, just projecting that it doesn't really matter. That's the sort of thing, even if you're not very political and, you know, you're one of these educated suburban women, affluent, you know, comfortable, who voted Republican prior and then didn't vote Republican in 2018 or 2020. Now, that's the sort of thing that can get you to jump off off the bandwagon. Uh, and also, let me add to that, you know, in, in the way that Biden is no longer particularly anti-Trumpy, Biden's fiercest supporters now are quite Trumpian in that they are America firsters, want no involvement with the outside world. What what are we doing in S-hole countries? The press is lying. Do no wrong. Yep, yep, don't believe the media. And uh, this president could do no wrong. He is the absolute portrait of confidence. Well, good luck to them with that. Yeah. And with that, we will uh, uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Uh, for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.